In the summer of 2001, I remember being in my kitchen where I grew up, my hometown, the house that I grew up in, uh, weeping with my mom. I had become a Christian two months prior, May 01, and as such, encountering the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ began to sift through the mess that was my life, as happens upon conversion to, to Christ. And then I realized there were things that needed to change, desperately needed to change. It made a mess in multiple areas. One of those was in relationships, and, and namely a, a longstanding relationship, dating relationship uh, in high school that had carried over some into college. And I knew that I did not do right in that relationship. And I knew becoming a Christian meant repenting, meant having conversations. And so I'll never forget having a conversation with that person, uh, owning my sin. And, and I'll be honest, that conversation did not go well. It did not go well. It was painful. And I left that, that conversation. It was outside a gym. And I went home. And on my kitchen table, I just wept. And here's a 20-year-old kid weeping with his mom at the kitchen table. I knew change needed to happen, and I was trying to figure out how to, how to go about those changes. Life with Christ necessitated change. In those moments, I was genuinely sorrowful for my sin. It was what the Bible called a godly grief that produces repentance. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. That's the right kind of grief, not just sorrow over consequences of your sin, but sorrow over the sin itself. That is godly grief, and that godly grief leads to genuine repentance, genuine change. And this morning, friends, we see a masterful picture of godly grief that leads to repentance, godly grief that produces repentance. We see this as we conclude our fall sermon series in the book of Ezra, We've arrived at Ezra chapter 10, the final chapter, and so I would invite you to turn there with me. Ezra chapter 10. Now, as you're turning there, it's on page 396 um, in the Bibles that we've provided on your chairs. So go ahead and, and begin to turn to Ezra chapter 10, page 396. A word of warning. This is a weighty passage. There is content in this passage that will shake your sensibilities. It's heavy. It's difficult. It is a picture of the reality of sin and the need for genuine repentance. And so I just want to invite you as your, your friend and as your pastor to persevere with me through the passage. Persevere with me through the passage. Ezra chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God and a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. 
Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandments of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all the Israel take oath that they would do as had been said, so they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. And then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twelfth, the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all our cities who have taken foreign wives come at the appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses according to their father's house, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Maaseah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brothers, they pledged themselves to put away their wives and their guilt offerings was a ram of the flock for their guilt. And now let's scan down to verse 44. All these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. So I just scanned over some 100 names, people implicated in the sin of intermarriage, Okay. We'll talk more about this as we go throughout, but you see priests mentioned, you see Levites mentioned, and you see all the people of Israel. Each of the main segments of society, priests, Levites, and all of Israel, implicated in this. Now, the aim of this sermon is to showcase how godly grief produces repentance, how godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, that leads to restoration. The structure of this passage is twofold. Godly grief, verses 1 through 8, produces repentance, verses 9 through the rest. Godly grief, 1 through 8, produces repentance, verses 9 through the end. 
Now, by way of review, because one of our elders, Dave Raffensperger, preached last Sunday introducing this whole area of unfaithfulness, intermarriage. Uh, Dave did a fine job. Dave Raffensperger preached on Ezra chapter 9. So the sin at hand here is the sin of intermarriage. Uh, That is, marrying among the idolatrous neighbors that Israel had. They were surrounded by nations who did not know the Lord, who did not worship the Lord. In fact, they worshiped a multitude of other gods. And God had called them through Abraham and the patriarchs to be a light that shone out to the nations that they might find their way to the Lord. But instead, what happened was the light was snuffed out. They were given over to the idolatry of the nations, and the reverse happened. And one of the ways that it happens is through intermingling, intermarriage with the nations. We see this commandment clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord says, You shall not intermarry with the nations who currently inhabit the promised land. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me. What is the danger here? Is it race? Is it ethnicity? No. The danger is idolatry. So friends, before you turn off your ears from listening to the rest of this because you believe the Bible is bigotry, no. This is not about race. It's about faith. This is not about ethnicity. It's about fidelity. That's what this is about. People's hearts who are right with the Lord. And what happened over and over again through Old Testament history is that their hearts got sideways with the Lord because They intermingled and intermarried with idolatrous people who would not put down their idols. A constant snare for the people of God. The application that underlies here in the whole whole passage is don't open yourself up to situations that can harm your faith. Don't put yourself in compromised positions. Oftentimes, that involves relationship. Not always, but oftentimes it does. We'll talk more about that. Don't open yourself up to situations that can harm your faith. Rather, seek to strengthen your faith through the decisions that you make day to day. So let's unpack this passage. First, we see godly grief, verses 1 through 8. Godly grief. Let's look together at these verses While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Notice who leads out in this expression of godly grief. It is Ezra, the skillful shepherd, who leads out. Notice he doesn't coerce the people. He doesn't twist anybody's arm to get out there with him. He leads out by expressing grief corporately over their sin. He was faithful but he was a part of a people who were unfaithful. So he leads out. That's what leaders do. They take ownership and they lead out. Doesn't twist anybody's arm. He leads out in this expression of godly grief and men, women, and children, a whole assembly follow him, corporately grieving over their sin. A very great assembly, we're told, of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly this is godly grief, genuine sorrow over the depth of your sin before a holy God. That's what we see here. A penetrating Puritan quote is this. I've shared this before. I remember it often. Until sin be bitter, grace will not be sweet. 
Until sin be bitter, grace will not be sweet to you. We've got to come to the point where we're broken over our sin. Otherwise, we'll never change. We'll continue to coddle it. You've got to be broken over the depth of your sin. Until sin be bitter, grace will not be sweet. Have you come to the point in your life? Has the Lord brought you to a point where you've wept over your sin? Been distraught over the destructive nature of your sin? Until sin be bitter, grace will not be sweet. Well, another leader among the people steps up and speaks on behalf of the people. Shechaniah, in verse 2, says, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. This verb, broken faith, it means to forsake or to abandon one's faith. It's what Dylan talked about in our time of confession. It's faithlessness to abandon or forsake faith in your beloved, in the, in the Lord. Again, just to let me reiterate, the sin of intermarriage was not about race. It was about faith. It was not about ethnicity. It was about fidelity. That means faith, faithfulness to the Lord. And these foreign women that we see here over and over again are women Spouses who still worship the idols of their people. In other words, these were spouses who were not teachable or open to the exclusive worship of the Lord God Almighty. That's what's at play here. Ezra's not being mean-spirited here. These are people who would not put down their idols. For we've already seen in Ezra 6, verse 21, the open invitation to the peoples, the, the nations, anybody could come if they worshiped the Lord God exclusively. So let me remind you, Ezra chapter 6, verse 21. The Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land. That is a key verse. You've got to read that to understand Ezra chapter 9 and 10. This is not bigotry. It's not mean-spiritedness. There's an open invitation for people from the nations to come to the Lord if they would worship him exclusively. But... If you're going to have one foot in the nations and in their worship and one foot with the Lord, that's not going to work. That's syncretism. That's having a kind of a worship mix. And certainly not if you're all worshiping the idols and not worshiping the Lord. So that's what was going on here. People who were not open, who were not teachable to forsaking their idols. That's what these spouses were doing. And they were a constant snare to God's people in their worship. God welcomes people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who will worship him exclusively. That's the truth throughout the Bible, the witness of the Bible. God welcomes people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who will worship him exclusively. These foreigners, these spouses in Ezra 10 were not willing to do this, and so they faced excommunication. So we have to come to grips with the gravity of this situation. Why such severe words here in Ezra 10? Well, the exile is the backdrop. What got God's people exiled in the first place was faithlessness, intermarrying with others of the nations and then worshiping the gods of those nations. That's what ultimately led to their exile in the first place, as dreadful as it was. And so that's why the tone of Ezra chapter 9 and 10, they just come out of bondage in exile and they stumbled into the same sin. That's what is at stake here. 
If they have any hope of spiritual vitality in the future, they have to repent of this sin right here, right now, or they're going to end up where they were in the past. That's what's at stake here. The exile was the backdrop. We find here in verse 2, great hope. Notice what Shechaniah says at the end of verse 2. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Friends, no matter the depth of your sin, there is always hope for repentant people. Always hope for repentant people. There is hope if people would turn to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord stands ready to forgive repentant sinners. What does repentance mean? We use this as a church word. You must understand what it means. Repentance means to do a 180 turn from the direction you're on, to turn from your sin and turn to God, your Savior. That's what repentance means. If you're going down Trapello Road towards Waverly Square, repentance means you do a 180 and you go the opposite direction towards Cushing Square. It's an about face, a 180. That's what Ezra is inviting the people to do here. Turn from your idolatry and turn to the one true living God who will never disappoint you, who satisfies your soul. Their plan of repentance unfolds in verse 3. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God and put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble and their commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Their repentance involved making a covenant, that is to make a resolute and binding commitment to depart this way of idolatry and intermarriage. So they vow to put away these wives and their children and so as to no longer be enticed to worship their gods. Now, at this point, we have to address the question that all of us are asking from the time I read the passage from the beginning. What becomes of these wives and children? Are you asking that question? You sure are. What becomes of these people created in the image of God, idolaters as they are? What becomes of them? The answer is we don't fully know. The text does not make any further comment other than they were put away. The verb there does not mean to divorce. The verb means to to bring out, to, to, to send out, so it's, it's most likely that these spouses who continued to cling to the idols of their nation, their home nation, were brought out, they were revealed, and they were sent away back to the place that they came. They were returned to the nations from which they came and to the gods that they worshipped. That, that's the picture here. They, they were re- returned back to where they came so as no longer to be a snare to Israel. Now, the breaking up of families, all of these questions that we have, I understand the sensibilities here. This is a hard picture in the Bible. Most assuredly, it's a hard truth. But friends, it's an invitation to take sin seriously and to take drastic measures as Jesus does in the Gospels. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. That's hyperbole. It's strong language to emphasize you need to take sin seriously. That's what's going on here. They returned these 
spouses and children back to the nations, to the gods that they worshipped. They were unwilling to turn to the Lord and worship him exclusively. The emphasis here is to take sin seriously and to do all that you can to strengthen your faith. Do everything that you can in your day-to-day decision-making to strengthen your faith and not open yourself up to situations that can harm your faith. What kind of decisions are you making on a daily basis to strengthen your faith? And what kind of decisions are you making on a daily basis that actually threatens your faith, that harms your faith? Some of these involve dating relationships. Some of them involve friendship. Some of them involve the hobbies and the things that we do for leisure. Some of them involve our, our workplaces and environments. You know, sometimes we're in a situation where, where, where we're compromising. So what decisions are we making to actually strengthen our faith? What decisions do we need to make to avoid the harming of our faith? We're called to be salt and light in this world. Matthew chapter 5. And if a salt loses its saltiness, what good is it, Jesus says? It ceases to fulfill the purpose for which it was designed. It's now just trampled underfoot. We're called to be salt and light to fulfill our purposes. And if we lose our saltiness, we lose our purpose. Now, I mentioned, this often involves relationships. What if I'm married to an unbeliever? What if I'm married to an unbeliever? Do I follow Ezra's counsel here in Ezra chapter 10? No, friends. This is where you got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Read the whole counsel of God. Old Testament narrative is oftentimes descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? It's descriptive in that it's describing a situation of sinfulness. It's not prescribing something that you, you ought to do necessarily. Or it's describing a situation of sin and how it was dealt with in that context. It's not prescribing something that you ought to do to deal with sin now. We've got to read on in the Bible to see how do we handle if a person is married to an unbeliever. The scripture sheds good light on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. Stay married with the unbelieving spouse if they consent to live with you. Now, this is a little bit different of a situation. What you saw in Corinth and in first century Rome, once Christianity started to spread, is pagan people will become believers in Christ. And sometimes only one spouse in a married couple would become believers. Now what do I do? Paul says, listen, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you, stay with them. Stay with them. First Peter chapter 3, perhaps you might win them over through your gracious conduct. Stay with them. If the unbelieving spouse does not want you around and does not want to be, you, you're not bound anymore, Paul says. Divorce is permissible if that unbelieving spouse doesn't want you. But if at all possible, if they're even ambivalent or they'll consent to stay with them and seek to pray for them and win them over through your words and your conduct, We've got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Stay. Stay. What if I'm dating a non-believer? What if a Christian here in this congregation is dating a non-believer? How do we we move forward? This is one of the hardest areas of pastoral counseling that I've dealt with in 13 years of ministry. 
Oh, relationships are so tender in the heart, so powerful, so difficult to make good and sound decisions on. Friend, if you are in a dating relationship with an unbeliever, my encouragement to you is that you need to part ways. And I know that's going to take some time, and I know it's going to be difficult, but you must part ways. I know there are stories of evangelistic dating. A Christian dates a non-Christian, and that non-Christian becomes a Christian. Praise the Lord for that, but that's not a license for us to go after that. Because more often than not, it's the, it's the believer's faith that becomes compromised through ongoing depth of relationship with an unbeliever. Do all that you can, friend, to strengthen your faith. Date in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the end of the passage, Paul says, marry in the Lord. So if we're going to marry in the Lord, it follows that we ought to date in the Lord. That is date Christians, okay? Marry in the Lord, that means you must date in the Lord. I know this is incredibly thorny, and I'm happy to talk to you a whole lot about it. It's tough. It's one of the most tender areas of our lives, but seek to make decisions in your relationships that strengthen your faith. Don't diminish your faith. Ezra's grief over his community's sin continues in verses 6 and following. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exile. You see the godly grief of Ezra on display. And then verse 7, this thoughtful plan of repentance begins to unfold more. A proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. You see here the, the importance of the assembly. They all had to gather and take ownership and make confession of their sin. Now, is the consequence here that we see of excommunication, is that harsh? No, it's vital to ensure the health and viability of the community, to ensure the witness and the existence of the community in an ongoing way. The purity of the people of God is at stake here. And friends, in the same way, this side of the cross, in this New Testament era, the purity of the church is of utmost importance. We need to help each other live before God in a holy way, to pursue holiness. That's why we see in Matthew chapter 18 the instruction on church discipline. Listen, church discipline is not a judgmental sin police force. Church discipline is always done in love with the goal of restoration. Jesus talks about excommunicating people who are unrepentant of their sin. They refuse to be teachable. They refuse to turn from their sin. They just go on and on in their sin. And the end game of that is to excommunicate them, to separate them from the believing community because their witness betrays their belief. They're no longer in keeping with people who believe in the Lord. That's what we see here. The purity of the community of God is at stake here. And if people aren't willing to pursue purity, they were excommunicated because their witness was at stake. Their, their existence, their viability was at stake. That's, that's what's at play here. We are called to be salt and light in this world. And if salt loses its saltiness and light loses its luminescence, what good is it? What good is it? Godly grief. Verses 1 through 8. 
produces repentance, verses 9 and following. We see the importance, <coughs> excuse me, of the assembly in verse 9 and following. All the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, that is the Hebrew month of Kislev, corresponds to December. It's the rainy season, the wet, cold season. On the 20th day of that month, all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. I mean, just picture this scene. You have hundreds of people, thousands of people out in front of the temple, trembling for two reasons. One, they're shaken over their sin before a holy God, and they're cold. It's December, and it's the rainy season. They're wet and cold, and so they're trembling. And then Ezra stands up, verse 10, and says, You have broken faith and married foreign women. You've increased the guilt of Israel. Now, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two days, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Now let's pause there. Notice Ezra saying, come all, let's gather and make confession. Verse 11, make confession to the Lord. That word is a rich worship word. It, it can also mean to praise or to give thanks, to, to make confession, to look to the Lord. It's a worship word. Why do I draw attention to this? Because every Sunday in our worship service, we have a time of confession. And you might be wondering, why in the world do we have confession in the service? Because, friends, when God's people confess their sins, it's a means of them worshiping God. Our acknowledging of our sins is a means of our worship. This word confession is a worship word. And the plan of repentance runs into some logistical challenges, doesn't it? They say, look, this is not a job for one day or two days. We need multiple days to figure out the extent of this sin, and it's cold and wet out here. So they basically kind of negotiate with Ezra and put a plan together. We need some time here. They need wise and discerning judges to help make inquiries case by case, marriage by marriage, spouse by spouse, to see the spiritual landscape here. And that's what happens in verse 14. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign women come at an appointed time with them, the elders and the judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away. Why bring in these judges? Because these are tender areas. These are people who have intermarried, and they need to have conversation with person to person spouse to spouse, married couple to married couple, and to see the extent of the spiritual landscape. Were they repentant? Were they willing to turn to the Lord and to celebrate his Passover that we see in Ezra chapter 6? Or were they continuing in their idolatry? That's why it took so much time. It took a lot of time to determine the level of guilt in these marriages. And as we see, it took three months Notice verse 16, Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. That's when the inquiry and the examination began. And by the first day of the first month, there are 12 months on the Hebrew calendar, 10th day, first day of the 10th month, or the first day of the first month, that's three months this took. 
it shows, friends, care, painstaking thoughtfulness in this tender work of determining sinfulness. Brothers and sisters, when addressing matters of sin in relationships with people in your local church, we would do well not to be hasty, but to proceed with extreme thoughtfulness and care. That's what we see here. The people said, we need to pump the brakes. We need more time. Three months it took to make inquiry. And after that, some 100 names are found. Guilty of intermarriage. Verses 18 and following. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Maaseah, Eliezer, Jarib, Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. So this sin was thoroughgoing. It was practiced among priests, among Levites, and among all Israel. Every tier of society had incurred guilt, thoroughgoing nature of their sin. Now, there's a question in verse 14 that is answered in verse 19. The ever-important question in verse 14 let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at the appointed time and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. So the question is, how will God's fierce wrath against his sinful people be turned away? There's a tension here. How is it going to be turned away? It's answered in verse 19. Verse 19, they pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock of their guilt. How would God's wrath be turned away from a sinful people? Through repentance and through faith. Through repentance and through faith. How do they repent? They repent by pledging themselves to put away those spouses who were caught up in idolatry, to put them away, to go the other direction. That's repentance. And then faith. How do they exercise faith? They trusted in God's provision of a guilt offering. That's what this ram, this guilt offering is all about. They are trusting in God's appointed means of atonement to cover over their guilt. They're trusting in sacrifice. So how is the fierce wrath of God turned away? By repentance and faith. This is how God's wrath is turned away from us as sinful people today. This was the invitation that Jesus had upon preaching his first sermon, Mark chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. Turn from your sinful ways and believe in me, for he will be the one who will lay down his life as a sacrifice later in the gospel of Mark. We repent from our sin and we trust in God's provision of atonement that culminates, the pinnacle atoning sacrifice is Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross. Philip Bliss wrote the wonderful hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. Let me read a portion of this hymn for you. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now listen. Stand unclean, no one else could. In my place condemned he stood. Now his nearness is my good. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus is the ultimate guilt offering. He's the ultimate sacrifice that God provided to cover over, to atone for his people's sin. That's what they did. They offered the ram. 
for their guilt offering. They trusted in God's provision. And that ram would point forward. It was a shadow of the substance to come, the substance in Christ Jesus who would die on a cross and be raised to new life. And anybody who trusts in that substitutionary sacrifice is forgiven of all their guilt and all their sin. Friend, I just plead with you. If you're here today and the wrath of God rests on you because you're living in unrepentant sin, turn to and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day of repentance and faith. Don't walk out of here not right with God. Get right with God by trusting in his provision of, of salvation and of forgiveness. It is this Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed. It is this Savior that we celebrate. And we have a particular moment to do that this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because what do we do in the Lord's Supper? Friends, we remember his substitutionary sacrifice. We remember the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood. That great work on our behalf in our place so that we can be forgiven and set free from sin. So if you are a believer in Christ, I want to welcome you to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, if you're not trusting in Christ today for salvation, just hold off on celebrating the Lord's Supper. We'd love to talk with you and explain what communion is and what faith in Christ is all about, and then return next month to the table ready to, to receive the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray for us, and then... If you've not had a chance to grab the communion cup, please grab that, and then we'll celebrate together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your provision of our forgiveness through your Son, Jesus Christ. Well, thank you that in our place condemned he stood. He is our ultimate guilt offering. All of us, Lord, as we look at our lives, we see unfaithfulness. God, I pray that we would repent and believe. Lord, that is the entry point for the kingdom of God, and it's also the guardrails that keep us walking with you, the king. Help us to be regularly repenting of our sins and trusting in you day in and day out. Keep us on the narrow way that leads to life. Father, I pray for some who are considering faith in you. God, would you move and work in their hearts? They would come to a saving faith in you, Lord Jesus. Guide us now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's in your name we pray. Amen.